Welcome, everyone. You are listening to Forged in Fire, where we explore how LGBTQ plus leaders develop their leadership superpowers. You'll hear from guests as they share how they navigated their journey through adverse and crucible experiences to develop into amazing leaders. Forged in Fire is hosted by Lieutenant Colonel Bree Fram and Dr. Liz Cavallaro. Hi, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Bree Fram. I'm an astronautical engineer in the United States Space Force and one of the senior transgender officers in the military. I'm a passionate advocate for the value inclusion brings to organizations. And I'm Dr. Liz Cavallaro. I'm an adult development scholar and associate professor at the U.S. Naval War College. I'm also an experienced researcher, interviewer, leader development practitioner, and professional executive coach. Please join us as we discover the inspiring stories of how LGBTQ leaders are forged. Welcome to Forged in Fire. Today we're excited to have Ross Murray joining us. Ross is a vice president at the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, or GLAD, at the Media Institute and provides activist, spokesperson, and media engagement training and education for LGBTQ and allied community members, the media industry, and advocacy organizations. Ross is also a founder and director of The Naming Project, a faith-based camp for LGBTQ youth and their allies. He's an author, and his book, Made, Known, Loved, Developing LGBTQ Inclusive Youth Ministry, is available from Fortress Press. Ross is a producer for, wait, Ross, you might have to help me out here, or I'm going to have my I'm Ron Burgundy moment uh, in pronunciation, the Yes Jesus? Yes Jesus. Yes Yes. Jesus, thank you, podcast, uh, which is a faith and sexuality affirming podcast that believes you don't have to pick between gay and God. Ross is an ordained deacon in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America with a specific calling to advocate for LGBTQ people and to bridge the LGBTQ and faith communities. Ross, thank you so much for joining us today on Forged in Fire. Thank you so much for having me. This is great to be with you. Ross, we're so excited to get to chat and learn a little bit about you today. So in the interest of starting at the beginning, um, I'd love to hear a little bit about some of the unique aspects of your upbringing and where you're from, and perhaps a bit about how that uh, connected with your journey in the LGBTQ community and various experiences such as coming out or others. Sure. I mean, I grew up in very rural northern Minnesota. So um, even when I moved to Minneapolis, I would say where I was from, Little Fork, Minnesota, by International Falls, and people would go, oh, oh, all the way up there. Um, International Falls. The paper mill place. Paper mill place, yes. Known for being the coldest place in the country, the icebox of the nation. Um, And I was from a town, a smaller town called Little Fork. Um, But even more remote than that, I grew up 15 miles out of town and the phone lines stopped 10 miles out of town. And so as a child, I only had Canadian television, no telephone, 10 acres of property in a former DNR forestry station that the um, that was sold to my family. And then we lived on that for most, like the whole time I was growing up. Um, and so I know rural living really well, um, very close, tight-knit family, um, sometimes struggled with my school and my community, had to do the thing where I sort of left to be able to come out, spend a little bit more time figuring out who I am, um, and then living into that in some way, too. I have a really interesting relationship with my hometown. So, Ross, we in- invited you on to this show because you're a storyteller, and we firmly believe that it is the power of story that gets across some of the points that facts and figures can't, that it's really important to be able to connect on a human level by sharing what is it about ourselves that makes a difference and that convinces others of our humanity. How did you come to realize the power of story as a leader in terms of bringing people along, influencing people, and making sure that that was a key part of your journey and your development? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I grew up with stories. Um, I come from a family. They are all in education. They're all teachers. Um, And I'm like the one that didn't do that. My grandmother, um, 
was in another very small town, northern Minnesota. And I learned when I grew up was a beloved English teacher. I had people that would stop me and say, oh, I had your grandmother. And they would like gush about her. Um, and my father's a teacher. My sister's an English teacher. Like this kind of just keeps going through the fact my other gra grandmother's a librarian, all this. And so this um, teaching education kind of always has been part of what I do. And even when I got into doing advocacy work, um, it always has had this very educational component to it and realizing that we want people to get things intellectually, but they really need to digest and absorb and know and believe and feel this in their gut and in their heart, in addition to in their head. Um, so in the job I had prior to GLAD, which was a the Lutheran LGBTQ advocacy organization. Um, that is where we learned a lot about storytelling, the Marshall Gans public narrative, what we would call it, telling your story in two minutes or less to call people to action. And, um, and taking people through this training that said, how do we share something that has people stop intellectualizing the reality of LGBTQ people in the life of the church or in society, but have people have it be real and have it be tangible. And one of the things I've sort of come to understand from that too, is that one, humans are way, way less rational than we like to believe that we are. Um, and even though we think we like process things through our heads, it really is that initial like gut reaction reptilian response that we get that really drives people, right? We get you or joy or anger, um, these kind of really core base feelings. And then it gets processed through our heart. And then it gets made sense of in our head in a way that we can actually talk about it. But all of that is based on that initial feeling. And so Stories are a way to have people feel something, to know it, to understand it, um, especially more than, you know, statistics. I, I tell people now, you know, don't start with statistics, start with the story, because when we throw out a statistic that, and of course, I don't have a good real statistic in front of me right now, but 75% of LGBTQ people experience discrimination at restaurants. That's not a real stat, but I'm just saying it you know, that's a lot, or millions of people do. No one can actually fathom what that feels like, but you give like one story about the discrimination that you faced, what happened, what led to it, how you felt in that moment, how you responded to it. Now people understand what it feels like one time, and then you can extrapolate and say, and this happens millions of times, right? Or this happens to so many of us. <clears throat> and then that number actually becomes much more real, whereas much more before, again, it's just heady. And I can sort of compartmentalize it from the rest of my life. And so we give people feelings through our stories. And then we end those stories with, now that you're feeling something, this is what I want you to do about it. Well, you just proved that 90% of all statistics are made up on the spot. So really appreciate that. <laughs> um, Ross, I really was interested in the way you described the real tangible, right? That kind of gut feeling that stories can bring to us. And I think that's very relevant to our project here with Forged and Fire in that we want to have those very real and maybe difficult conversations, particularly around adverse experiences. And while acknowledging all of the very negative outcomes and challenges associated with that, also talk about what are the unique opportunities in that, in the way that LGBTQ leaders develop? Mm -hmm. Well, and I think, one, this is why you have a brilliant name for your podcast, because one of the things I always think with stories, and when you're thinking strategically about stories, is that I am not telling you this story to make you pity me. I'm not making, I'm not telling it to you so that you say... <clears throat> the world sucks and it's a terrible place because there's plenty of bad things that are happening in the world. These stories are always supposed to inspire some form of action and to do something. And so these stories are ways that we talk about <clears throat> and being very realistic about the challenges we face and telling people, this is how I overcame it. This is how I got through it to be the person I am today. And if I could do it, so can you. Just like I had to learn how to something, something, you and we can all learn together, learn how to do something, something. And I think 
it becomes really important for people to see themselves also being there with you kind of in that moment, because then, then they also can imagine would I have reacted the same way? Um, maybe not. Or maybe now that you told me what you did, that's a good example that I should try to follow and emulate. And if it worked for her, it might work for me too. Well, can we dive into a little bit of your story then about moments where you may have faced discrimination or adversity that helped change the way you either thought about yourself, thought about leadership, or really the trajectory of your life? I know in some previous interviews and writing, you talked about the fact that you were once told you were desecrating a ministry and, and kicked out. Are there moments like that that shaped who you are and the leader you became, though they may have been negative? you turned them to some positives. Yeah. I mean, so one of the things that's big into me, and you'll hear this, um, you've heard religion comes up a lot. So like I kind of theologize things a lot too. And one of the things that I focus a lot on um, are kind of two parts, identity, who am I, and vocation. What am I supposed to do? And I find, um, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I'm very privileged. Again, I have a good family. I have um, lots of privilege goes with it. So that experience of joining a, I joined this um, after college, a traveling musical ministry team. And I'd had a great experience in college, but had going to university sort of be the way that I was just going to come out to people. Um, I'm moving to a different city. No one knows my backstory. I can just tell them I'm gay. In fact, I can tell a couple gossipy people and they'll tell everyone else for me. And then I don't have to. That was my, that was one <laughs> smart thing. Um, and also then being very active and kind of combining that churchy life that I had um, with the LGBTQ gay part of my life and putting that together in a way that felt right and natural for me. But I didn't realize other people were not, didn't have that same kind of like way those things went together. It was after college that I sort of carried this like, well, I just win people over with my natural charm and charisma uh, and it didn't work that way, right? I, I came out to them pretty fairly early on. This, it, so this this program is like um, traveling in a basically a converted airport shuttle around the country and doing programs at churches and sleeping in host homes and singing songs and puppet shows and stuff like that. And I wanted to be, you know, very upfront and honest. And I came out to them until I was gay, until I had a significant other. Um, and uh, others had difficulty with that, right? And I realized, oh, I can't just win people over by sort of being my natural, nice, charming self. There are some folks that just have roadblocks that they have to work through for themselves. Um, and sometimes you don't want to be the person that they're working through it on. Um, and so, and, and there's also larger factors, right? People that I was not on an immediate team with and seeing and living with every day um, also had opinions about my being a part of this program. And so I got kicked out after four months. Um, I was, uh, you know, someone secretly like anonymously reported me to the organization. The president of the organization had gone down a whole thing about sexuality. So I kind of knew he was not going to be in a very affirming place. Um, and I, even as I said, like, look, I'm being like very professional. I'm being very upfront. I'm doing everything right that you want. Just the fact of me being out and comfortable and not penitent, I think was was an issue for others. And getting kicked out, of course, now it makes an issue for me. So I have to uh, think through, what am I going to do with this? And I could say, is this, you know, is this a problem that I'm having with God? Not really. And so it's the people that I'm having a problem with. And it didn't shake my faith, but also opened up opportunities for other people that said, we're trying to make the world church more welcoming and inclusive. Here's how we're doing this. Do you want to join us? They heard what happened to me. They were mad on my behalf and said, here's the thing we're trying to do to make our overall denomination uh, a better place and starting to join with them. And as terrible as that experience was, I think there's two caveats with that. One, that is the worst act of ex discrimination I've experienced directly, which is good, right? It was not a physical assault. It was not, you know, that, this in terms of going through it was, it was hard. Um, but when I see and hear stories of things that people are enduring today, I realized that, that, that it was still very fortunate and I would definitely not be in this position. Um, if that hadn't happened then, um, because my plan, my life trajectory was to kind of like quietly be a youth ministry person and work at the church and, um, just kind of abide by whatever rules sort of existed just so I could get by. And 
or win people over by charm. And I realized those things weren't going to happen unless we change systems. And so then I've joined organizations that help to change systems within a church, um, within our culture, within our legal rights and protections that we have in this country. And all of that still stems back to my relationship with those seven other people on a converted airport shuttle. My goodness, I could tell you, like, there's no passenger seat, so the passenger would just sit on a milk crate, like in the front of the van. This is a death <laughs> that we're driving across the country, and the fact that I'm still alive is also kind of a miracle. So, well, you you hit on the fact that so many of us just become these accidental advocates after that moment. It really crystallizes our journey going forward. Yeah, yeah, it, it was something I never had planned or anticipated, and I really I, I've started to use accidental activist um, quite a bit. Uh, I'm working on another book right now and we're calling it the everyday advocate, but one of the titles was actually the accidental advocate because the same story is the same thing. Like oftentimes I think for a lot of us, you know, I said, we have to make this, the, the discrimination. We have to make the thing we're working on real for people. The sad thing is for a lot of people, it doesn't become real until they've actually experienced it themselves. Um, and that's probably true for me too. Um, and we just, you know, we don't realize how bad it is until we have some taste of that. And then we say, oh, this is not good. I don't want this for me. And I don't want it for anybody else either. Um, and it does. It changes It changes your vocation. It changes that calling um, that you have that says, what am I going to do in this world? Well, I can't do it this way. So I'm going to have to do it this way, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. So Ross, those challenging experiences, you know, they clearly gave you the impetus and the motivation to do something about it. They clearly gave you the the story to tell um, and a way to connect your experiences to have an impact on others. What are some of the other leadership skills or qualities that you feel were either developed or honed by those experiences that you're able to employ in your work today? One thing I think that's really helpful to to do. And, and we kind of do this already, but we have to just do it in a more strategic way. We really have to understand where people are and what their values are and what their motivation is. I think one thing that I see happening out in public discourse right now is kind of parallel conversations that sort of miss each other like this, because I'm coming forward with my, you know, liberal values and talking about the way that things should be and trying to reach a conservative person that doesn't even agree with what we think the world should be. Um, and realizing that I have to figure out what they value, what they fear, um, what motivates them, because I can probably, and this happens, right, in political context, people that do like deep canvassing learn stuff like this, right? You get, you actually learn what people care about and you realize I'm actually proposing a solution to the problem that you're describing, but you've never seen my solution, you know, connected to your problem, but I need to figure out how to make that connection. And part of that is spending so much more time listening to people trying to understand them, trying to know where they are and how to get them sort of, um, you know, how to move them forward um, into a place of kind of what I call allyship. I've got a whole kind of spectrum for myself about punitive rejection and silence and tolerance and acceptance and advocacy. And you know those are developmental kind of phases and I can't make someone go from being a punitive rejection you know, completely anti everything I'm about to being an absolute advocate supporter, they kind of have to go through this process. And each one of those processes means they need something different to help move them along. And I can't use the same argument for everyone. And so we need to do a lot more customization, which is really hard to do with traditional media or social media or something that we put out there in the world and everybody sees. Because I realize I have a message for this group of people, but everybody's going to see it. Um, and other people won't quite get it the way that I, the audience that I'm really intending for to see it. So it takes so much more kind of that one-on-one. -on -one. You hit on a, a really valuable point in that answer about how, how challenging it is to change a perception completely, to do a 180 right from the start. And it often takes those crucible moments, those big challenges that all of a sudden force us to re-examine ourselves and the way we view the world. And that LGBTQ people 
tend to have quite a few of them because the world has always told you you're one thing and that expectation is on you to be that thing. And the first step is so often that internal, am I that thing? How do you tell people and engage with people so that that first step maybe happens? Or how did your own journey of saying, is this me? Am, am I a gay man? Even though the world says I'm something else, inform your leadership style and then how you connect with people. Yeah, I think one of the, and I think this is really interesting doing this work in religion spaces as well. Um, and especially, say, especially within the evangelical world. And I, I'm not evangelical, so I'm a bit of an outsider to it. I know religion. I know I can do faith-based talk. I do very Christian-y talk. Um, but there's a particular culture that sort of exists there that is sort of a, this is one big package. Um, and I've heard people say this. I, I talked to um, a, a kind of a well-known lesbian who came out and she, you know, and she said, well, I assumed that if I became a lesbian, it meant I had to become an atheist too, right? That there was these assumptions of like, this is all a package deal. And if you are not everything that we need, then you are absolutely nothing at all. Um, and it took a bit of work for her to come around to that. And I've seen similar type things show up for people of, um, you know, does it mean that I have to throw out um, everything that I know about myself to be true. Um, and I think, you know, we have a lot of expectations on who we're supposed to be in the world. And a lot of, like you said, the world telling us, um, this is what you are now live up to it. The really important thing and what I really encourage for people is, this is a good Christian word, discernment, right? It is a lot of time spent doing examination of that, your identity, who am I? Um, and, also realizing that all these aspects of your identity are like a, like a kaleidoscope, right? And there are these different pieces, and at certain times, you twist the kaleidoscope and they all fall into place in a certain way. And you get to a different context, which twists the kaleidoscope again, and they fall together in a different way. And sometimes going into a room, um, me being gay is the most important thing about me because that's what people care about for good or for bad at that room. Maybe me being white is the most important thing in the room. Um, maybe me being male is the most important thing in the room. Maybe me being Christian is the most important thing in the room. I am all of these things and a lot more, but what is the thing that is the most important thing in this particular context? Or how do these different aspects fit together in what makes me me? And it's not that one negates the other. Um, it really is a lot of time spent. Um, and when I do this work for GLAAD, I say this too. Uh, I remind people like the, this, this gigantic acronym that we use for ourselves, um, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, um, intersex, asexual, right? All these, I, and you know, there's been a lot of conversation about labels and I've started to tell people, don't think of them as labels. These are adjectives that describe people. And the person is always the person. I am always me. Um, and if I need to give you more details about who I am, then I'm gonna tell you things like tall, gay, male, white, Christian, Minnesotan, educated, right? Stuff like that. Um, and that gives you more information that lets you know more about who I am as a person. Um, none of those things are the totality of our identity. And I think for a lot of us thinking about um, how to use that in leadership is recognizing these are the things, this is the way that my piece of my identity fall together in this context. And this is why it might be different in this different room too. You spoke a bit about a continual examination and continually revisiting who am I, what is that identity, what does that mean in this context versus that. And the what I'm hearing in that is that it's never-ending and it's time-consuming and it's energy-consuming. So how is it that you recharge the battery? How do you keep going knowing that you're going to have to keep doing this examination and retelling of these stories in new ways over and over again? One thing I think is that the examination itself is actually part of the recharging. Um, there's so much, and I am a workaholic and I am constantly doing something, but, you know, a lot of the stuff that, that I do, and I think a lot of stuff that most of us do is for, or in front of, or because of other people. Um, and self-examination 
is kind of withdrawing yourself from other people, their expectations, um, their needs from you, and spending just a bit of time to check in with yourself and see who you are. Um, and that examination time doesn't have to feel like work. Sometimes it just is separating yourself from all the rest of the demands and the voices and the expectations to actually say, okay, who am who am I, right? And again, what am I supposed to do in the world? Which can grow and evolve and change over time too. I'm certainly not the same person that I was when I was um, 30 or 20 or 15 or, you know, or 10. Um, and, and that kind of stepping away can be really helpful. So one of the things that we do for the naming project is this church camp for teenagers. And one of the things I realized is having young people get away from the demands and pressures of school and peers and family and jobs and whatever their community is like in their church um, and putting them at a camp in the woods. We're not telling them to be anything. We're not, you know, we're not telling them to be gay or queer or trans or, or, or whatever. Um, what we're kind of just doing is giving them space to let them think about that for themselves. And then if they want, they can tell us who they are. Um, and we've made a decision for ourselves as leaders that we're going to believe what you tell us about yourself and we're going to treat you accordingly. And because it's adolescence and because you are figuring it out, you might come back to me later and tell me something different than what you told me the first time. That is what adolescence is, right? Like sometimes you learn something new, either about yourself or you learn a word existed out there that you didn't know, but realize that word applies to you. Um, and so part of that leadership is just like letting them have enough space to do a bit of figuring out who they are before they go back into what school tells them what, um, it's the same thing I did when I went from my hometown to, to university, right? Like, okay, this is my time that I can tell people and I don't have to explain the backstory. I can just tell people this who I am and they can sort of just assume, believe it. And that's kind of the same thing that we set up for the naming project. You give these kids the space and the support to be themselves and do that introspective first step in a very supportive environment. How do you translate that to emerging leaders and other LGBTQ folks that may work for your organization or, or elsewhere that you're trying to help develop or be that ally to communities that you aren't a part of? So really what I'm asking is, Aside from that safety support, what else is there that you can help people along their developmental journey now that you've been through so much of it and experienced, you know, this arc of your own career and life? Yeah, I, I think one of the things that I've really loved from my work at GLAD has been um, the number of interns or young staff for whom this is their first job. And I feel like what I offer there is a bit of the flip side that sort of, as someone who's been through things and seen things, um, and perhaps might be, I call myself sometimes jaded or bitter, um, and I am very aware of how the world works. And what I, what really always gets me is if someone's like spirit gets crushed because, you know, they had ideals and then the world just like does not work that way or our systems don't work that way. Oh, and that ideal versus yeah. uh, incremental change. That is a tough pill for a lot of people to swallow. Yeah, exactly. Or like, why aren't we all on the same page about this? Why, why don't we, we're all part of the LGBTQ community. Why don't we all get along with each other? Right. It, it, there's just all this stuff like that. And I think helping people that are now going to engage and work in the world in some way to say, I still want to honor who you are and I'm very aware of what roadblocks you might face. And it is not to say don't do something or don't be something, but it is to say, just know this is where the roadblocks are because then you could actually make a plan for how you're going to go over and around them. Um, when I was young, so going back to my like coming out, when I was young in, in high school, one of the people I came out to was my local pastor. And this was, uh, you know, I was a teenager or maybe early college as we had conversation about this. And he also knew denominational church politics, right? He said like, there was this debate on the floor of our denominational assembly uh, that was about inclusion for LGBTQ people. And it didn't go anywhere. And then he sort of like, sort of said like, look, 
I think you'd make a wonderful minister. I think you'd make a wonderful pastor, a wonderful deacon. I don't see the policy of our church changing in your lifetime, right? Um, that was a, he really cared for me and probably also didn't want to just kind of watch me run into a brick wall over and over again. Um, and when the policy did change, and I was part of the organization that did that, this another one of these conferences, um, he was there and came up to me and told me how happy he was that he was wrong in his prediction that this policy wasn't going to change. Um, and so it's kind of this like, I want to make sure that you're going to be the best you that you can possibly be and to figure out how you can be the best you can possibly knowing what kind of systems and pressures and ways in which the world works. Um, and it it's a really hard balance to keep those two things. Um, but especially for people that are young and eager and ready and want to do and change the world. I want them to be effective too. And so I'm going to do what I can to help do that, which one could be helping to clear their way if I've got the power and privilege to do it. Or it can be saying like, look, be aware, you're going to run into this and this and this. So start thinking about how you're going to overcome those obstacles now before you hit them and don't get surprised or despondent or like, I had no clue it was going to work like this. You um, have such a theme in all of the work that you've done of opening doors, paving the way, uh, really making sure to utilize whatever privilege you have or whatever wisdom you have or whatever resources are available to you to give back to others. What is it about your journey that has instilled that sense of responsibility, that desire to give back and, and continue paving the way? I mean, I think there's probably several things that do this. One um, my faith is really a big part of it. Right. Um, and I've always thought of my Christian faith as one that is always rooted in, um, sacrificial love. Like it is doing, it is giving, it's trying to be, um, trying to be helpful and, and thinking always of the least of these, um, which is a phrase that gets used a lot. Um, it's something that was always a part of, you know, my, my family, um, and, I'll be honest, I probably also have seen some greedy people too that are kind of figuring out how do we get this for ourselves, right? And how do I stab someone else in the back so that I can get this for myself? Um, and whenever I see that, I get so turned off by that, um, that I don't want to be or become that. And so that kind of always reminds me of, you know, what kind of person I could be. And, and I laugh, my husband, and I laugh about this. It's a rueful laugh, I will say, but it's one of those like, um, do you know how much easier our life would be if I was just one of those like ignorant gays that didn't follow the news and didn't pay attention to what else was happening and just kind of live in my privileged life without being connected. And I kind of sighed and be like, wouldn't that be nice? I wouldn't feel this pressure. I'd, you know, um, I'd sleep at night. I, you know, and, and then I sort of realized like, and yet I just know for me, like, that is impossible to do. I can't not pay attention um, to what's happening in the world. And when I see what's happening in the world, I want to sincerely want to be able to do something about it. You open the door perfectly there to talk about what's happening in, in the world. I know we recently got to celebrate the signing of the Respect for Marriage Act at the White House and, and see a beautiful and, and moving ceremony there in enshrining some of those incremental gains. It may not have been everything we wanted, but it's moving the ball forward. But we also have the negative things that are going on in the world. There's still a lot of hate uh, and things about this community that people find offensive. Uh, and you have the Club Q shooting uh, having happened also just recently. I know you and your organization have done a lot to try and change the culture uh, about how the LGBTQ community is viewed. What are some of those key things that you see that we as leaders can do to help move that culture conversation forward? One of the things I'm seeing today, and, and, and this is backed up by polling, acceptance and understanding for LGBTQ people is on the rise and higher than it's ever been before. Right. And it's hard to keep that in perspective when you think of the news and Club Q and attacks on drag shows and bomb threats and things like this. Um, but what I think is happening is that the we have an incredibly vocal and violent and loud minority that gets more attention 
than the vast majority of people that now have seen and understood a lot of aspects about our lives. Um, and the tricky thing, and this is what GLAD cares about so much too, is that once you hear that something is controversial, then people think it's controversial. So if the news covers um, a policy change or a, a a good swimmer or a runner or a drag queen or you know a, 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 a trans person playing sports, if they get labeled them controversial, people think they are, right? Um, and even if people have their own personal support of, then they're like, oh, well, I'm very nervous. So that it kind of helps, to, it draws them back. I think one of the things that we need to constantly be doing is to name the reality we want to see. Um, I spend a lot less time on apologetics and a lot more time proactively saying, here are the good things that happen. Here are the barriers that we still have to overcome. And here's the momentum. Here's the way in which we're going to do it. Um, and so we can say, yeah, there really has been some horrible violence that's being um, uh, dropped down in the LGBTQ community, particularly the trans community, um, and say that that is a reality. And then say, so what are the things that we're going to do? We're going to make sure that we are visible and vocal allies. We're going to make sure that people that want to bring violence um, know that they are not getting um, majority public support for this. We're going to let the people that have a platform, elected leaders, celebrities, um, uh, reporters, media folks, um, also know that that we have this level of uh, support. Um, it's really sad that it often takes a really terrible, violent incident to have people care um, and if that's going to happen, we're not going to let that go to waste, right? It is a, this has happened too many times already. It needs to stop. Um, and trying to do that, um, so that other people can understand the scale of problem and then give them those solutions that really can say, if you speak out, if you say something, if you say you care, if you say, well, I don't know much about that, so I'm going to go learn more helps other people to know what they can and should be doing. Um, and I think that's going to be incumbent upon all of us, not just for representing ourselves, but especially for people and identities and communities that we're not actually a part of. Um, because we're also those kind of ambassadors. Um, and sometimes we're going to be the ones that our friends or our family are going to actually be able to listen to. So much of your work seems to be that affirmation, that proactive and positive messaging. So whether it's working with youth and saying to them, I'm going to believe what you tell me, and then I'm going to support you based on that, or whether it's doing media work and trying to help people see we're going to succeed, we're going to achieve, we're, you know, staying focused on those things, even amidst all of the many negatives. Um, and so what is it that you draw on in your life to keep your own spirit in that place, to keep out of the jaded place and, and, bring that positivity continually? I think a few things. Um, it, I know I've said my faith a few times, but I feel like that's big and informing a lot of what I do. Um, and But I also practice my faith in kind of a, a unique way, I guess. So um, my husband is very helpful um, and can be a sounding board. He comes from computer science and math, a very different world than I come from, sees and knows and hears and, and perceives things in a really different way. So it can be a very good sounding board. Um, and then the creative projects where I feel like I'm getting to build something, where I'm getting to create something, um, always kind of helps me see and know that there is a future ahead of us. And so going back to the naming project is, I'm doing this so we can help secure the next generation. Um, this is not about reacting to something, but actually about building something. Um, our own podcast, Yes, Jesus, has been a way for uh, for me and for others to be able to take um, my faith, my theology, my church history, my biblical knowledge, and do something really unique and different, right? You don't get to hear do a plug for our podcast. It is very irreverent and it's very funny. And we will make jokes about sex and drugs and all sorts of things while still being a very faithful Christian podcast. Um, and again, there are folks that probably say you can't do those things together. And yet it's where most people are. And I think we're speaking to that place where people feel like they should be acting a certain way. And we're kind of trying to give an example of you don't have to act a certain way. You can come with your doubts, your insecurities, your hangups, your swear words, um, right? Your your sexual pro proclivities, right? And we'll find ways to to make sure that it is light, included, fun, 
funny um, and and find ways to talk about it in a way that's helpful. And I find that really um, feeds my soul and feeds my spirit. Um, and so it lets me know that there is a future. And I also, and then my faith, my theology is sort of this belief also that I am also very aware that I am not going to do everything perfectly. I'm not going to do most things perfectly. Um, and whatever I do is not necessarily going to be enough. Um, and there is a trust and a belief in grace and that what I do is going to be enough. And the grace of God is going to um, fill the rest of that in, is going to understand what I was trying to do, do the best thing with it, or help me learn from those mistakes um, so that I can keep doing better in the future. Um, so I don't get this you know, anxiety of, oh my goodness, if I do it wrong, it's gonna be bad, so I'm just not gonna do anything. I would rather do something and do it badly than to not do anything at all, if possible. Russ, your work to create this culture of inclusion is, is so important and, and so valuable. But me being a, a military person, you know, we talk about things like a focus on tactics is going to win a battle, but a focus on logistics is going to win a war. And you wrote an article uh, a year or two ago about the logistics of queer folks, in a way, and talking about sleeping arrangements for, for LGBTQ youth as a, as a logistics problem to be solved. But you reframed it as one of those, I'm going to turn this negative into a positive and this opportunity, as you said, to protect those who are most vulnerable uh, among us. So can you talk to us a little about the logistics of queer folks and how we do that work uh, on a logistical level to protect those that are most vulnerable among us? Yeah. One of the things that I, I mean, this has been true everywhere. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who want to be allies um, and the intention is the right place, but they kind of need to be told what to do. They have that fear of if I do it wrong, it's going to make it worse. So if I don't do anything, so I, part of my role is sort of tell them how. And, and, and that thing with the sleeping arrangements, all related to the naming project, right? Like I have these pastors, these youth ministry people that now say like, oh, I have this transgender child. What should I do? Or I've got three or four gay and lesbian kids. What do I do? Um, how do we do bathrooms? How do we sleep? All they're, they're thinking through this. Um, and, and so they'd ask us a ton of questions like what to do or like, how do you do what you do? Um, and I finally explained that, you know, sleeping arrangements is the thing that people like care about the most. Um, and what, what I've sort of realized is that they just want to be kind of given explicit instructions. The hard part is, and I think you see this in, in military as well is you know, every context is different and trying this in this context is not the same thing as trying this thing over here. So I try to like back up a little bit, one to say, what are your values? Because that's also going to drive your decision-making process. And then there's a lot of, you need to take in what the context is so you can make the right choices. Um, and with you sleeping arrangements at say a church trip or a camp or something like that too. Our first summer, everyone asked us, how are you going to do sleeping arrangements? In fact, one parent said, and if you watch, there's a documentary about our camp and you can hear the parent ask this at a quote unquote normal camp, you're trying to keep the boys away from the girls cabin and the girls away from the boys cabin. But what are you going to do here? Um, and what we decided to do that first year was instead of putting kids in cabins everyone went and grabbed mattresses off of the beds and then pulled it to the chapel. And we all stayed in the chapel together as one big group, kind of like lock-in style, um, which means nobody has privacy, right? And there's no expectation of it because we are all in this space together. Um, and, 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 you know, your privacy is like the bathroom um, and behind a locked door somewhere else. And so the it said, we're all being treated equally because we're all in this shared space and we're going to share everything together. We did not keep that every year. Um, it worked very well the first year. It was very cold. And um, one year there was a frost advisory. So everyone was like crammed very close to a fireplace <clears throat> that we kept running throughout the night. And so, and then we would shift right into, and, and we did things like gendered cabins. And, but now what we have is a lodge. Um, and, you know, this camp didn't have a lot. They built it 
over the time that we've been there. And it has several rooms. And the big advantage was that the room has bunk beds that'll sleep like six to eight uh, campers per room. But every room also has a bathroom, two sinks, and then behind a locked door is where the toilet and the shower are. So now you have, this is my shared space with a few other people. I can do things at the sink. And then this is my really private space here, right? And there are some other bathrooms actually down the hall if you're, but you're never in a line that's too long um, to try to get into, try to get into the private space. And so, but that's not, you know, the lodge doesn't exist everywhere. Um, For everyone's privacy on a trip, you should put everyone in a room by themselves. But that's not a very practical response. And um, when you get to hotel rooms, it's a very expensive response. And so we don't, you know, we don't do that. Um, But let's think through what are the things that actually would have people feel safe? What are things that we could do to have people feel comfortable? And I propose things like maybe maybe when it comes to hotel rooms and you need to save money, you're going to put four kids in a room because that's what you do. Maybe instead of splitting them up specifically by gender or having a transgender child that you decide where they want to put, why don't you put them with the people that they know and have a good relationship with and trust because they're going to have a level of comfort with each other rather than cramming them in a room, either with, you know, the the sex they were assigned at birth where bullying can happen or cramming in a room with other kids that don't actually accept them for their gender, which also can um, incur bullying. Like neither of those is good. Putting them with friends even if those friends are maybe a mixed gender room might actually be the safest thing to do because there's a level of trust there that say, okay, we know we're going to get along and that we're not going to harass each other. So it's thinking through stuff like that and having to come up with solutions, say what's going to work for us in this moment in the, in the architecture that we have to deal with and also the makeup of the group. From a leadership standpoint, that's perfect individualized consideration. I'm going to take the context into perspective and I'm going to come up with a solution that works as best we can. Yeah, it really is. I, it's funny. I, you know, I've seen camps that also say like, yes, we've created a, we call them thing like gender queer cabins or something too. And I said that works, unless you only have one trans kid, and then that kid's out in a cabin like all by themselves. That doesn't. That's just as stigmatizing. I can make groupings this way because I think this will be the way in which people are going to get along and work together. Because that's ultimately what we're trying to do more than anything else. So some of the implications of that is that you have to take context into account. You have to be willing to revisit. You have to be willing to put in the time and effort to figure out the best situation, the best option for the given context. And that might evolve over time. And so when you're advising others, whether that be other church groups or media around these things that basically require time, effort, leadership, consideration, how do you get people to a place where they're ready and willing to put in that level of time and effort? Yeah, yeah. I realized, like, yeah, we get a lot of, and Glad gets this too, right? Again, people want specific instructions. I spend a lot of time asking questions. Um, and it's, you know, it's kind of the Socratic method. Um, I may, But I may not know what solution I'm leading them to. It mostly is, look, you think your problem is this but it might be something different than what you're actually identifying as a problem. And if I can get all the rest of the information around this, I may be able to find a solution to not just this specific thing that you asked me about, but this bigger issue that you haven't thought about too. And that happens a lot at GLAAD. Um, you know, it, it, one of the things with GLAAD is we always say, we, you have to reach out to us early enough that we can do something about it, right? Um, and so... It does take time. It does mean asking questions. And it also means I rarely give like simple, straightforward, one word answers. Um, and, you know, and, and spend a lot of time figuring out what is it you're trying to get out of this? What are you trying to achieve? Um, and is this going to be the way to do that? Or is the thing you're trying to achieve actually the best thing to be achieving right now? Um, Which sometimes is a hard conversation to say, thank you for trying to solve that problem, but that's not really a problem. Um, Maybe instead you want to try to solve this other problem over here that you could do something about. And and that um, the questioning I think is really good because it does force people to think through what assumptions went into the project or campaign or whatever it is they're doing. We discussed early on 
how you experienced that rejection from, from the group you were part of traveling around and that, you know, you found out that being a nice and charming person just wasn't enough. Now, LGBTQ people face discrimination in a number of ways or those moments of rejection. What is it about that moment or the shortly thereafter that people need to look to and focus at as, here's how we're going to get past this? What are the skills and capacities needed to move forward and turn that rejection into something that allows us to thrive afterwards? I think one thing is recognizing that that rejection is one moment. And I I spend a lot of time thinking up the worst possible thing that can happen um, because I do think if once you imagine that, you can find a lot of stuff that falls short of the worst possible thing that can happen. Um, or you feel like it's not at least not a surprise, right? Um, and I don't want people to feel caught off guard by rejection that they didn't expect. And so as people say, oh, my, you know, the surprise for me was probably the biggest problem. Um, For others, knowing that the rejection from one party doesn't mean the world has rejected me. Um, It doesn't mean that I have lost all my family and friends, the support network. It doesn't stop it from hurting and it doesn't stop it from stinging. Um, But it's part of this much larger constellation that can help to put that into perspective. Uh, I didn't experience once, actually, this is one of my college experiences. I I had a very conservative roommate in college um, and I came out to him and he was one of those people that I did win over with my natural charm and charisma and we got along very well. Um, But he, you know, he probably felt like he needed to tell his parents. His parents told his pastor and I had gone to church with him a few times and I'd like play piano for them because they needed a a musician. So I'd like play hymns for them or something to help them out. And so the pastor, um, the pastor wanted to stage this intervention with me. Um, And I I did a couple things. One, I said, yeah, I'd love to talk to you because I also have to write this religion paper when I interview someone. So I sort of like also made it my thing too, not just him talking to me. So I took him through the interview and then, you know, he, he did this intervention. He pulled out lots of like gay tropes, a lot of like negative stuff and compared, like he compared it to, um, he told me he had a compulsion that whenever he saw a pregnant woman, he had an urge to kick her in the stomach. Um, and I said, Oh, that's sick. Like I, like I, I had a big reaction to that. Right. So he's, he's doing this comparison. Um, and at the end of it, he said, well, if you continue in the homosexual lifestyle, you won't be able to be a member of our church. And I said, oh, I never intended to be a member of your church. I thought I was helping you out by playing piano for you. That's fine. I can go back to my own. Um, and realize, you know, the thing that he was going to use to try to have power over me, it didn't because I had a network. I had a support system. Um, I branched out from it and was there for a while, but uh when I've learned like, oh, that's not a good place. Okay, fine. I'll go back to the places that do know and love and accept me. And I'll, you know, venture out somewhere else to see if it's better. And if it's not, I can always go back to that existing network of community and safety that I already know I have. You know, it's the theme of creativity keeps coming out, whether it's the creativity of turning someone's attempted intervention into, let me interview you for a paper, um, or the creativity that needs to go into those logistical challenges and thinking about them as opportunities. Um, Yeah, but what I hear is creating, right? And you talked about even just sort of as the self-care of keeping yourself in a positive place, being able to build something or create something. Perhaps you could share a little bit about one of your most recent creations, which is your book that's coming out in May of 23. Yeah. So this book is, um, it's out. I finished the the youth ministry book and the last couple chapters get a little pointed in that I say, you know, it's great if we can create welcoming churches for youth. However, we cannot expect that young people or anyone is necessarily going to walk through the door of our churches. So we can create a great program, but we're not going to reach most people that need to get it. We need to figure out how to start getting out there into the wider world um, and to let LGBTQ people know that we're allies, which is we're going to have to prove not in our own doors. Um, and which went into this looks like advocacy, right? We need you to just be speaking up about this law or this bill, opposing it or for it or whatever it is, showing up at 
school board meetings um, and city council meetings and maybe state legislatures um, and saying that actually is youth ministry. So this new book, The Everyday Advocate, um, is designed for lay people, um, people that do not live, eat, and breathe advocacy work the way that perhaps we do, um, to figure out there is something you can do. Um, and you doing something will help. And let's help to think through what's the mindset, what's the mentality, how do we keep ourselves going? Um, and infusing it, it's for a faith-based audience, so very much infusing it with a lot of theology and, and scripture stories and stuff like that too, but, but also very kind of skills practical focus, because the idea is to give people something to do. I don't tell them what issue to advocate on. In fact, I even say someone could use this book to learn skills to advocate against positions that I would never, ever, ever take. Um, they're probably not going to read the book because I go down I go down a pretty progressive direction there. But, uh, but I realize I think most everyday people get overwhelmed. They're scared of doing it wrong, as I said, or they're comparing themselves to someone else who's doing more or better. Um, and they see, you know, giants in our history, like Martin Luther King Jr. or Gandhi, and they're like, well, I could never do that. Or they see themselves comparing themselves to folks today. And even, I'll share this story too. My husband and I um, were at a, like a retreat with my family, a lot of nice church people, upper Midwest church people, um, and talking, and someone said, can you tell us about the advocacy that you do? And so we described it, and I was talking about my work, and my husband does a lot of stuff with um, economic justice and fair taxation, stuff like that. And we described this, and then this woman just blurted out, she said, well, I could never do all that stuff that you're doing. And I realized I had intended to tell her this stuff in order to inspire her to do something, but all I was doing was overwhelming her. Um, and so like, I need to dial this back in a way of like, okay, let me give you this action, right? Um, and she also, I think the other thing is important where people's mindsets are. When I talked about advocacy or activism, she said, do you mean like the people that stand outside screaming with signs? Um, and I had to say, that is one thing that people can do. However, there's a lot of different things. And if you're not, and I am not a stand outside screaming person, quite frankly, I am, this is a very Minnesota thing. I'm very conflict avoidant. Um, and so I would much rather do my advocacy in a way that's going to be um, maybe behind the scenes, maybe direct, maybe information, um, you know, uh, manipulation, um, more so than the I'm going to march in the streets kind of thing. Um, and we need all those types. And so if you say, you know, advocacy is not just one thing, it is many, many, many things. And I'm trying to give people that idea of one of the many, many things that they could be doing. And that's, that's what goes into the everyday advocate. Ross, we've got time just for about one more question. So I want to leave with something that, because you're our second guest on Forged in Fire, and we're going to be over the course of this series. I am forging a path for this podcast. You absolutely are. So as we do that, we're looking at this nexus between sexual orientation, gender identity, and leadership. What are the things that might be out there, or might we find at that nexus that would surprise people, or something from your journey that might surprise people is, hey, that's not what I expected to find when I talk about queer leadership. One thing I think, and we've kind of said this before, I think queer leadership is people that have been through things know how to be leaders for others. Um, and so if you, as you look at the experiences of people that come from the margins, I think that our, our society doesn't usually often call that leadership, but the fact that people have been able to survive and thrive and still have successes, even with limited resources, um, including things like public trust, right? Or, um, or uh, reputation, I think even uh, you can see what incredible leadership comes out of marginalized communities. Um, and the queer community is part of that, right? As you, as you, as you kind of do the intersections of, um, you know, people of color, people with disabilities, um, trans and non-binary folks, you're going to find that leadership come up because people are very acutely aware of how the world works and they have figured out solutions for it for themselves and can be really good at helping other people figure out solutions to those same problems too. I think that's one. The other thing I think that you'll really find, and this is one of the things I love about our community, right? We are we are an acronym or we're an initialism. I had a grammar person tell me that LGBTQ is not an acronym. It's actually an initialism. Um, and 
because that 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 initialism implies so many different things our community is very broad and very diverse which means you're going to find a lot of different approaches to things um and the the thing that we are not is uniform uh and i i like the idea of a community because it does mean that we don't always agree on the steps or the process or the priorities um but there is something that kind of keeps us tethered together, even while we're out there with so many different experiences of the world. So you're not going to get one leadership style. You're going to get a million of them because there's just millions of different ways to be LGBTQ. And, and that's going to express itself in how people become leaders. Well, Ross Murray, we are so thankful you joined us for this episode and helped us crack open that egg of queer leadership to see what hatches, because I think we are going to see those myriad stories that are out there with some amazing themes that you helped highlight for us today about inclusion and bringing in everyone. And we're excited for the launch of your next book and looking forward to all the amazing things you're going to continue to do for this community. So thanks again for joining us today. Thanks, Ross. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode. Forged in Fire is hosted by Brie Fram and Liz Cavallero. Produced and engineered by Frida Castellanos and Christina George. Guest management by Trey Wirth and original music by Bridget Benemark. The views and ideas expressed by the hosts and guests of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the organizations or institutions they represent. To learn more about Forged in Fire, please visit us at forgedinfire.org. Thank you.